last week and talking about feeling tone. I ended up getting about halfway through the talk. And so this week I'm going to finish that. (sighs) And uh, then we'll see how far I go, elaborate a little bit more. But the halfway through was basically, I got about halfway, a third or halfway through the section of the Satipatthana Sutta that describes the practice of working with feeling tone. And maybe that's surprising because it's such a simple section of the sutta. I read last time, the sutta begins, that section of the sutta begins. When one feels a pleasant feeling, one understands I feel a pleasant feeling. When one feels an unpleasant feeling, one understands. I feel an unpleasant feeling. When one feels a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, one understands. I feel a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. And then we explored what that meant and how that might be helpful. And the sutta continues to further distinguish types of feeling tone by what the text calls the word the word in Pali is a little hard to translate apparently it it it, the word um, the word in Pali is samisa and there's two two sides of it samisa and niramisa and roughly it means of the flesh and not of the flesh. So the sutta distinguishes feeling tones into feeling tones of the flesh and not of the flesh. Different translations for this, uh, worldly and unworldly. Bhikkhu Bodhi, in one version of his translation, that's what he uses in one version, in worldly and unworldly. In another version he uses carnal and spiritual. One teacher describes it as feeling tones associated with the path of practice or not associated with the path of practice, the of the flesh, the worldly feeling tones, not on the path, not associated with the path and feelings associated with the path of practice. So I'll read this in one of Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. When feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, one understands I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly unpleasant feeling, one understands I feel a worldly unpleasant feeling. You get the drift. And when feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, one understands I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling, etc. So what is this, this distinction Bhikkhu Analio points to to it as possibly being a kind of um, an ethical distinction around feeling tone, and in in terms of ethical meaning, what supports the path of practice, what is onward leading, and so this begins to ask us to explore 
the kinds of feelings that we have in terms of what kinds of feelings are um, supporting the path of practice and what what feelings are kind of maybe keeping us more um, habitually hooked in our usual modes of experience, our usual ways of wanting things to be a certain way. So this worldly or of the flesh feeling tone, my understanding of that is that it's basically feeling tones associated with our sense contacts. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. Things associated with our usual sense experience. Also with ideas that arise in the mind. Thoughts about, for example, there might be pleasant sensation associated with the taste of food, for example. That would be a worldly pleasant experience. There might be a pleasant experience associated with the thought of food. That would be a worldly pleasant mental experience. So these are kinds of the feelings that we're familiar with in our everyday lives. And they tend to be, um, you know, they tend to be what drives us to stay hooked into the sensory realm, the sense experience. That teaching that uh, Rebecca pointed to on um, Viparinama Dukkha, the Dukkha associated with pleasant experience and the, the, the gratification, the danger, and the escape as being a way for us to understand that the danger, the, the kind of the, the viparinama dukkha, is um, a kind of the danger hidden in pleasant experience, that tendency we have to crave to it, to get hooked to it, to want more of it. And that very being hooked to it, that very wanting, kind of keeping us on this wheel of just having to get more of what we like, get rid of what we don't like. And so this is one way, perhaps, to understand what the worldly feeling tone is. The unworldly feeling tone, my understanding, is that it is um, feeling tones associated with, um, well, we could say feeling tones associated with wholesome emotions, those wholesome states of mind that lead us towards freedom, that lead us to let go of greed, aversion, and delusion. Feelings connected with the path of practice, feelings associated with concentration, understanding, and insight feelings associated with generosity, the brahmi-viharas, the feeling tones associated, because we're, we're speaking about the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect of experience. And so many of these wholesome states, which Winnie spoke about the other night, the cultivation of the wholesome states, many of the wholesome states have a pleasant feeling tone. happiness, kind of having a a light and uplifting, very pleasant feeling, happiness, joy, being pleasant experiences, concentration, 
creating uh, a kind of a unified state where the unification is pleasant and the and the um, happiness and joy that come with that unification are pleasant. The um, seclusion from the hindrances is very pleasant. The bliss of seclusion, sometimes concentration is called. The experience of being free from the hindrances, very pleasant. So these would be understood as being the pleasure of the path. And the Buddha... um, kind of at one point in his uh, journey is said to have discovered and said kind of to himself you know that that he was he had he had gone through this uh, exploration around um, kind of indulging in pleasure being indulged in pleasure as a child and then um, in um, the path of meditative practice he uh, learned the concentration states and experienced a lot of pleasure there. But that wasn't what he was looking for. Those states of concentration wasn't what he was looking for in terms of freedom from suffering because he found when coming out of that, the suffering was still there. It hadn't transformed anything just to go into the states of concentration. And so he began trying different practices. He began trying mortification practices, extreme unpleasant practices, depriving himself of food, refraining from breathing for long stretches of time until it said he felt like his head was splitting open. And so he he played with these different ways of practices that were available at the time and found that they weren't the answer to his question of how. Is it possible to be free from suffering? Is it possible? And it's said that as he was practically nearly dead, you know, the, the, the description of his, his body after doing these mortification practices, it's said that he could touch, in touching his stomach, he could feel his backbone. That's how thin he was. And he realized, this is not the way either. I'm going to die before I find the, the, uh, whether it's possible to be free of suffering. And so he began, he began nourishing himself again. And after he kind of recovered his health, he was reflecting on his life and reflecting on some of uh, his experiences as a child, I think they kind of arose spontaneously. And he remembered this experience when he was a child, sitting under a tree, watching his father. And he apparently, in that, in that time, I, I don't know how old he was as a child, but um, you know, he apparently kind of spontaneously went into a concentrated state. And... His reflection in that moment was, is that kind of concentration something to avoid? Is it something to fear? Is that pleasure, that kind of pleasure, a kind of pleasure that is uh, not supportive of the path? And his, his mind answered the question, no, actually that kind of pleasure feels supportive, it feels helpful. And he said, I wonder if that's the way, exploring that kind of pleasure. 
And, and the answer he got was he, th- he thought it was. And so he began a new kind of journey and exploration. And so these wholesome qualities are on the path. We find them as we, and the, the pleasantness that comes with them. They are on the path. And we find, as Winnie was describing, we find them being cultivated as we explore working with our difficulties. Even exploring being with anger and frustration and confusion, the quality of being present can create an almost pleasantness. I've experienced seeing anger arise and feeling joy in the seeing of it. And that joy is this kind of unworldly pleasure because it is the, the, the heart and mind kind of resonating with this is the way, this is the direction towards freedom, this kind of understanding, this kind of relationship to experience. And so there's many kinds of unworldly pleasant experience associated with many of these wholesome emotions. The pleasure of generosity, the pleasure of ethical conduct, the recognition that uh, the bliss of blamelessness, the gift of fearlessness. And then there's, there's even like just the simple happiness that comes and a delight, a pleasure that can come as we come into present moment experience. I know many of you have talked about this kind of thing. It, it may seem like, you know, and some of you have talked about like it seeming like the world is sparkling or that kind of experience. And just to open your eyes and look out your sense experience, there's pleasure. And this may seem like the pleasure of the sense experience, but I think it's really connected to the, to the wholesomeness of being present. You know, we can be walking um, and, and see like a pile of dead, wet leaves and be in awe of that. That's probably not because the dead, wet leaves are inherently pleasurable to look at, but because the mind is so present, it's experiencing things in a different way. And so this is, this is also a, a kind of um, unworldly pleasure, the pleasure of being present. Things that wouldn't normally be what we would be drawn to. And I think sometimes we can tell the distinction here because it's, it, it's not, well, it can be. I mean, I have been on retreat and see something like that, and it's like, wow, I need to take a picture of that. You know, so kind of like grabbing onto it and feeling like, you know, I need to hold on to that. And so we can and we do cling to these unworldly feeling tones. The unworldly feeling tones do not make us immune from craving and clinging to them. Just remembering, you know, many of you also have described how, um, you know, having some kind of an experience, a, a, um, a, a sitting where things are particularly clear, for instance, how the next sitting or the next day 
there's this a kind of craving to get it back and a trying to trying to make that happen again. What did I do? How did I do it? I can't make it happen. I'm doing something wrong. What's wrong with me? And so we we cling. We can cling to these wholesome and these uh, unworldly, pleasant states. And then we suffer. And so we get the feedback that it's not helpful to cling to those either. But this unworldly feeling, as the, the sutta describes, it's, it's not just pleasant. What would unworldly, unpleasant feeling be? I've wondered about this. I've explored this. I've you know, explored what might it be. What are wholesome emotions that are unpleasant? There's a little hint in the suttas. There's one place where it describes what's called the, the distress of renunciation. And it says something like, there's the uh, kind of longing for freedom from suffering. That that kind of movement or wish to be free from suffering as we experience dukkha. And maybe we've had a taste. Sometimes it, it comes particularly after we've had a taste of a different way, after we've had a sense of... of um, meeting dukkha just as it is and having that sense of, oh, this isn't such a problem. It's just unpleasant experience happening. And the mind kind of settling and relaxing around it. There's, a, there's an understanding that there's a different way to meet experience. And having had that taste, sometimes when our minds go back to their habitual ways of relating to experience, the ways in which we are clinging instead of, oh, it's just something arising. It's just a thought arising. That's all that's happening. But that kind of, that is a a place of insight, that kind of understanding, oh, it's just a thought arising. No no, um, reactivity in the mind around what's arising. When there's no reactivity in the mind around what's arising, that's a state of insight. And it doesn't last often. It's impermanent. And so we we kind of find our way back to our ordinary, usual way of relating to things. And we um, start to experience again the kind of habitual ways in which we cling, and we feel like we've done something wrong. And partly because we uh, have tasted, you know, sometimes when we've tasted that flavor of release from suffering, when the habit of suffering returns, this kind of longing can arise. I've heard you, some of you talk about it. And while it can be mixed up with aversion or greed, there is often a, a piece of it that is connected with the wish for our own well-being, with the movement towards freedom. 
And so this is described actually as a wholesome, unpleasant experience, this longing for freedom, the pure longing for freedom, this uh, connected in a way with the, um, the, the state of mind of samvega, you know, the motivation, this, this longing for freedom motivates the practice. And so that's a piece of its wholesomeness, its motivation for keeping us on the path as opposed to throwing up our hands and saying, well, I think I'll go back to watching all those movies instead. (laughs) There's another um, description of unworldly, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience based in insight based in in understanding the impermanent nature of experience. Three different descriptions, very similar at the beginning. It says understanding things are impermanent and unreliable, understanding their, uh, their nature to decay and end. Sometimes it says joy arises. So understanding the impermanent nature of experience, sometimes we experience joy in that place. Sometimes we experience that, as, as Rebecca pointed to, the, the, when there's an ending of something that's unpleasant, <laughs> there, can be, there can be joy in that just because of the ending of the unpleasant. But there can also be a kind of delight just in the seeing of not because it's pleasant or unpleasant, but just in the seeing of this being's, how this being is, is doing its thing. Witnessing this being's, uh, um, the nature of the experience to be coming and going. It can sometimes be a very delightful experience when we touch into that. And at other times, touching into that deep impermanence that things are falling away. This recognition there's nowhere to land. No place where there's a reliability, where the mind can land there and say, oh yeah, that's where I'll be. That's where I'll be happy. So sometimes the seeing of the impermanence takes us to this place of, Longing for freedom takes us to a kind of a, of a, of a place of, of um, mm, distress about the uh, unreliable nature of experience, impermanent, unreliable nature of experience. And so sometimes the experience around impermanence can be uh, received and felt as pleasant, sometimes as unpleasant, and sometimes as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. The place where sometimes we touch into that impermanent changing experience and the mind is just balanced. There's equanimity in the mind. No 
feeling tone there, just the understanding of the impermanent nature of experience. And so the, uh, as the mind moves into insight and understanding, different feeling tones can arise connected with the, these understandings. And so this is just something useful to be aware of. That unpleasant feeling does not always mean you're not on the path. There's a, a, a teaching in one sutta that connects these feeling tones to a different um, way of expressing them. I mentioned it briefly earlier around um, the distress based on renunciation. The, uh, this teaching, um, and Bhikkhu Bodhi makes the connection between the worldly and unworldly feeling tones and this other expression which speaks about the joy, the distress, and the equanimity based on the householder life and the joy, the equanimity, and the distress based on renunciation. And in that teaching, there's a very interesting kind of way that they're all linked together. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta basically just encourages us to notice when unworldly, unpleasant is arising, notice that. So this the teaching in the Satipatthana to me is kind of helping us to begin to distinguish those feelings on the path and not on the path. Those feelings that tend to keep us stuck in the usual habitual ways of relating to the world and the feelings that are related to the onward leading, uh, the onward leading nature of the path. So just a distinction, just a kind of Understanding of the difference between them is the description of the teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta. In this other text, in this other teaching, um, the Buddha begins to explore kind of a way in which there's a... It almost sounds like to me a a stair-stepping of how we learn to let go. How we learn, how the mind learns to let go of the ways that it clings to things. And in, in the sutta, it says, you know, when when we are um, experiencing um, worldly pleasant experience, we can kind of transcend that by relying on unworldly pleasant experience. So what does that mean? The Buddha describes his own experience. Before my enlightenment, when I was the unenlightened bodhisattva, I clearly saw how central pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering, and much despair, and how great the danger is in them. But as long as I did not see, did not attain to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sense pleasures, 
apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, I recognized that I could still be attracted to sense pleasures. But when I clearly saw, as it actually is with proper wisdom, how sense pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering, much despair, and how great is the danger in them, and I had attained to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sense pleasure, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, I recognized that I was no longer attracted to sensual pleasures. So the phrase in the, in the sutta, by relying on this, by relying on the pleasure of concentration, by relying on the pleasure of wholesome states, or something more peaceful than that even. We could say, I think he's referring to the pleasure of nibbana, of freedom. But also, I think it, it can um, point to the pleasure of insight, the pleasure of understanding, the pleasure of being present and seeing things as they actually are. That that pleasure, by relying on that, abandon, by relying on this, abandon that. By relying on unworldly, pleasant, abandon the attachment to worldly, pleasant. By relying on this, abandon that. There's a whole stair-stepping that he does in the sutta, and I'm not going to go through the entire thing. Just kind of reflect on this this kind of... um, Phrase by relying on this, abandon that. And maybe describe some of the ways in which I've experienced this. And So the joy of renunciation, the joy that comes with understanding, the joy that comes with concentration provides a deeper kind of pleasure in a way that helps us to understand that the joy and the delight of sense pleasure pales in comparison. And so it becomes easier to let go of that that kind of neediness. It's like when we've tasted something different, it becomes easier to let go of the less wholesome kind of way in which our mind has been relating to the world. And yet, then, we may crave <laughs> the, the concentration. You know, this, is, this is what I was just speaking to. You know, so by relying on the concentration or the understanding, I mean, there are different ways in. I, I've seen in my own experience, sometimes just by, almost by relying on mindfulness and wisdom and the understanding that comes by meeting dukkha, being with anger, being able to watch it and see it and watch it fall apart, a deep sense of um, uh, ease and peace comes into the mind connected with that seeing and that understanding. And yet then we get attached to that, that kind of doing Steve Armstrong, I think, I think it was Steve Armstrong that coined this phrase. You know that we we have a, a particularly good sitting, and 
the next day we're really struggling to get back to it and he said there's nothing like a good sit to ruin your day (laughs) that's that craving for that state so that's not helpful either and yet what what we um, what we start to see is that there are times in which we may, for instance, um, uh, be holding on to some kind of practice in order to uh, let go of something more painful. Picking up the metta practice, for example, when anger is really strong. And maybe there's a, there's a recognition in there of like, you know, kind of like holding on to the metta practice for dear life so that you can navigate, balance the mind around the, the anger. And then maybe the anger begins to weaken and fall away. And so maybe there is some clinging to that metta. And yet the clinging to that metta the clinging to a particular practice around helping us to let go of some kind of reactive, unwholesome state of mind. Perhaps that clinging to that unwholesome state of mind, or to to the wholesome state, clinging to the metta, is allowing us, is partly what's allowing us to let go of the unwholesome state. By relying on this, abandon that. But then we're going to at some point have to work on the clinging to the practices, the clinging there. My own experience with this is... um, My early practice was so much around exploring anger, self-hatred, and uh, there, was, there was some clinging to the practice, clinging to being a meditator. The very first meditation retreat I sat, I kind of saw myself beginning to create an identity of a meditator. But there was a real usefulness to it for years to help the mind work with and let go of those really deep patterns and habits around anger and self-hatred. I wasn't at that point experiencing any suffering around the identity of being a meditator. I mean, I could see that I was identified. I heard the teachings about not being identified. And fortunately, I didn't say, oh, I shouldn't, shouldn't do that. I shouldn't be identified with being a meditator because then I wouldn't have done anything. Sometimes we may have to um, kind of hold on to something in order to meet or work with much more challenging experience. And then there was a certain point in my practice where that identity of being a meditator, where that uh, sense of um, 
know, investigation was really a big place around uh, the identification, the, the, the kind of the capacity that this mind has to look into experience and pull it apart and understand all of the different things going on. There was a lot of that kind of putting things under a microscope in my early years of practice. And that putting things under a microscope was helpful some, for some times. But then there was a point at which that putting it under the microscope actually was experienced as suffering. That sense of, oh, there's something happening. Oh, let me, let me find it and look at it and figure it out. And that was experienced as suffering because what, what was being observed was not that bigger kind of that major or, or much larger kind of uh, suffering that was... Um, kind of obscuring the subtler suffering of the identification with being a meditator, the identification with being someone who uh, could investigate well. But at a certain point, it's like a certain level of suffering kind of falls away. And then we get to look at subtler levels of suffering, such as the suffering around the practice. And so sometimes I say, you know, we can let suffering be our guide. You know, if, you're, if you are, um, you know, feeling or finding yourself kind of clinging to the practice a little bit while observing something very difficult, it's possible that that is serving you in that moment. If you're not experiencing the suffering of the in the practice itself in that place, and more the suffering is in the whatever that you're working with, the anger or the hatred, the self-hatred, the confusion or the fear, and that kind of subtle clinging to the practice may be a kind of craving that helps you overcome craving. There's actually a phrase in the suttas that says that. I was really happy to read this because it's kind of my experience. And I'm going to paraphrase this because it's, a, it's, it's using words that we haven't defined yet, but I will uh, paraphrase this. So this is Ananda speaking, actually. He's speaking to a nun. And he is saying to her, it is by relying on craving that craving is to be abandoned. There is a case where one might hear, that person, such and such, they say, has become completely freed of suffering. And hearing that, one may have the thought, I hope that I too one day will become completely free of suffering. And then at a later time, one abandons craving, having relied on craving. Relying on this, abandon that. In this case, relying on a a, a kind of a craving to both wholesome um, states that 
wish for freedom being a wholesome wish. The teaching here acknowledges that craving. And that when we, you know, when we kind of rely on something um, in that way, it's like because of the way the practice is framed, as that, uh, as the bigger a kind of craving gets abandoned, then we, we start to see, because we understand, we begin to recognize. We're looking at craving. We feel the suffering of craving. We've abandoned a bigger craving. Oh, here's some smaller craving. And we may even feel it more strongly. So this, this kind of uh, exploration around where is the craving this takes us deeper and deeper into subtler and subtler kinds of craving. And we may be craving the practice. We may be craving holding on to the practice. Craving freedom, craving liberation. There's another analogy that really um, feels like it speaks to this uh, by relying on this, abandon that. And many of you have heard this analogy, maybe even all of you, the simile of the raft. And in this simile, the Buddha describes that there's a, you, you come upon a flood, a, a kind of a flood of water, and that the, the near shore where you are is dangerous and that you need to get to the far shore to find safety. And in order to cross over this flood, he says, you, you can build a raft. Build it out of what's around you. Just build, the, build a raft. And using the raft, floating on the water, using the energy, paddling with your hands and feet, so I've got this image of like lying on the, lying on the raft, <laughs> paddling with hands and feet to get across to the far shore. And in this process, uh, the, the Buddha describes that the, the, the flood is basically the flood of suffering, the flood of greed, aversion, delusion, and that the, um, uh, the raft is the Eightfold Path. He describes in the simile that the raft is like the Eightfold Path. And so we use the Eightfold Path to cross the flood. Now, so by relying on the Eightfold Path, we manage to float on the surface of the water instead of drowning in in the suffering, instead of drowning in the greed, aversion, and delusion. We manage to stay afloat. We can't let go of the raft in the middle of the river. We, we have to, and maybe even we have to hold on tightly to that raft. If there's rapids or, or big waves in the, in the water, we may have to hold on tightly to that raft, cling to that raft to get across. It's not useful to say, oh, clinging to the raft, I better not do that. Let's throw the raft away while we're in the middle of the river. So this is, by relying on this, we can abandon that. By relying on the practices of the Eightfold Path, we can get across the flood. 
we do get across the flood. And the teaching goes on. As you cross the flood, as you get to the other side, uh, the Buddha says, so getting to the other side, is it useful to pick up that raft and say, wow, this raft has been really helpful. Let me carry it around with me on my head. No, that's not useful. There is a point at which we put down the raft when it's no longer needed to support us to cross the flood. And so the Buddha at the end of this teaching says, and so we need to abandon clinging to wholesome states. How much more so to unwholesome states? And yet this analogy points out in a way that we have to hold on at least, maybe cling to wholesome states while we're crossing the flood. But then... It's like that. I think partly this is pointing to not picking up the, the teachings as a thing, carrying them around with us, saying, I am a Buddhist. This is what I do. This is who I am. That's not uh, relevant or necessary at a certain point. But by relying on this, abandon that. Eventually, the teachings let us know there's a possibility of complete release of clinging. As I mentioned earlier, I feel like we do have to recognize the suffering of the clinging to the wholesome states. That will be something that we need to work with at some point. We'll recognize that. We'll recognize that this is not the suffering of it begins to the, the whole the whole way the teachings are are framed is so beautiful because we're always looking at where's the suffering where's the clinging where's the most obvious suffering and clinging initially it's kind of at this grosser level and then it becomes at the subtler level and and yet we're always looking at that and exploring the possibility of letting go. And that letting go happens not because, not because we decide to let go necessarily, but because the understanding develops as we observe what it's like to cling. So that's the practice. We recognize that clinging is happening. That that experience when we're suffering from having had a good sit, a good sitting having ruined our day. What's the clinging there? The mind having an idea that this experience isn't good enough. Some agenda that something else should be happening. There's this, this idea that that sitting yesterday meant something 
And that it's not happening now, that means something else. All different ways in which our mind is tying itself up in knots, trying to get back to something, as opposed to recognizing, in the first place, this is just like, well, as, as I think Winnie even said this this morning, it's like, well, this is what's happening. There's clinging happening to the wanting that state back. And if you look, it's like, you know, you're not clinging to the state. You can't cling to that state. It's not here. You're clinging to some idea in your mind. You're clinging to a thought. It's amazing what our minds will cling to. So we can see what's happening right now. There's a thought in the mind that some other thing would be better. And the mind is holding on to that. And being with that, noticing that, we feel the suffering of it. We feel that suffering of it. And it's not a mistake to feel the suffering of it. You know, this is, this is part of how the learning happens. I don't remember if, if we've pointed to this, but it kind of feels to me that there's you know, this movement in the direction of our system, kind of our organism wants to move in the direction of well-being just very naturally. And there's just been a fundamental like misunderstanding about how that's possible. The mind has all kinds of ideas and views and opinions that kind of obscure or kind of get in the mix in terms of this movement to well-being. And so it's like the, the, the system is moving to well-being and our thoughts go in, oh, this would be how we should get to well-being. Get what we want, get rid of what, what we don't want. And so our kind of thoughts and our habits and our conditioning kind of co-opt that movement towards well-being to this, actually this, set of things that we do that actually keeps us caught in suffering. And so our minds are fundamentally confused. (laughs) Really. And as we start to turn towards experience and look at, oh, this is the experience of suffering. When I'm wanting something to hold on to or wanting to get rid of something, the experience of the wanting or the aversion, the greed or the aversion, is already suffering. I mean, we fundamentally like jumped over that to, it's going to be great when I get that thing. It's, it's going to be so great when I get rid of that thing. And we are missing completely that we're suffering right now. And so what the practice does is points out that suffering right now in the, in the greed and the aversion. This is not a mistake. This is actually how the practice works. As our system gets better information, it starts to go, that's not helpful. <laughs> I, think, I think, yeah, that way lies suffering. Let's let go of that. And so the, the wisdom of our system begins to help the mind let go of the suffering. We don't do that. That deeper kind of letting go. There are times in our practice where we do have a sensor. We see, yeah, that's that's catching me up. Maybe I should set that aside. But this deeper kind of letting go, this happens because the mind 
is understanding at a very deep level. That way lies suffering. Just not going there. This is a kind of a movement of our of our system, our organism wants to move in this direction. And when it gets the information about greed and aversion and delusion, it starts to let that go. And so the path of the letting go, eventually all of these ways in which we cling Buddha expressed the possibility of it's possible to be completely free from clinging, completely free from craving, completely free from suffering. And in that place, you know, there's, there's the, the, the putting down of the path. You know, that's it's an interesting image, the putting down of that raft. It's like... Our, our, our normal minds might think, well, if we put down the raft, well, how, do we, how do we do anything? You know, what, what do we, how do we orient our minds? And, and the understanding is that wisdom, love, compassion will orient the mind towards wholesome action naturally. There's a, a teaching in... Um, in one of the suttas that describes when somebody is fully awakened, they, I think the, 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 the language is they possess the eightfold path. Actually, tenfold path. There's a, two more that are about the freedom, right understanding and right release, right liberation and right release. Um, and that possessing the path is, is understood just to be the natural, my senses, it's just the natural effect, the natural consequences. We don't have to try to be ethical at that point. We don't have to pick up the path. It's living us, we could say. the expression of someone who has crossed the flood, released greed, aversion, and delusion, is to live a wholesome, ethical, life with freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.